Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this day is out of Proverbs 29, verse 23, and it says, A man's pride will bring him low, but the humble in spirit will retain honor. In this text, we see the root of so many of man's problems, that he suffers from pride. Indeed, it is the sin that led to man's fall in the garden, that Adam and Eve wanted to be like God. We see in places like James 4, 6 that God resists the proud. Man, as a creature, can be so proud, and I think we all know that, right? And we often see it in other people. We don't always so often see it in ourselves. We can struggle with this, can't we? We see in our pride how hard it is to go to someone when we've sinned against them. We want them to come to us, but it's so hard for us to go to them. How hard it is for us to confess our sins. How we want to make excuses for our sins and point the finger at someone else. To remove our sin from us by blame shifting. And that is pride. But we also see pride coming out of us when we look down on another's sins. Um, We look down on their situations in life and all of those types of things. When we imply that we could never be in such a position and we forget that but by the grace of God, so go I. God resists every form of pride. But the opposite quality is humility. And the second part of this verse and the second part of James 4.6 is that God gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the contrite in heart who know they are sinners who know they need the grace and mercy of God, who know that they could never stand on their own before the holy, holy, holy God, but need the mercy of the covering of Christ's righteousness for them. The humble in spirit retain honor, but pride will bring you low. Pride will destroy you. And every time we sin, we are saying that we know better than God. We are full of pride. So often when we come to odds with our neighbors, it is because of pride. We fail to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all our strength, and we forget and fail to love our neighbor, and that is out of pride. Therefore, it is so right and good for us to kneel before the Lord our God and acknowledge our sins before Him and confess our sins of pride before Him. So if you are able, please take a privilege of coming and and worshiping this day and uh, it's in the middle of the midst of the Christmas season Um, and uh, today's text uh, is actually out of Matthew 17 as our congregation has been going through Matthew 17 I'm bringing you know Matthew to you all as well and uh, our text uh, this time happens to be the transfiguration which thinking about um, the Christmas season 
you know, this is another one of those signs of why Christ came and why he came. And so our readings today were, we saw that, you know, the gospels bring, being brought forth to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. And it's not just the Jews, it's not just the people of God, it's not just the Israel, Israelites that the gospel is being brought to, but also the Gentiles. And the transfiguration is part of that great work that Christ does. And in it, we see the glory of Christ. So we're going to look at this very important point in Christ's ministry here on earth. The transfiguration is really one of those really glorious passages about, that we have about Jesus. And it opens up a picture of who Jesus is in his unveiled glory of who Jesus actually is. Um, understanding the context of a particular text of scripture I often say is really important because we can see how the author of the text is going through and how it's expanding uh, our knowledge of who Jesus is or whatever text that we're looking at and see how those things are developed. So just a refresher on what's going on in Matthew kind of in the context of the transfiguration is important for us. So uh, Gospel of Matthew really quickly is first and foremost about Jesus as king. And uh, he's the rightful heir to the throne. You can see that in his genealogies and who, date, and who his uh, father is, his adopted father Joseph is. Um, he's, we see all of that. And we see that Jesus is being established as the king of kings, uh, the lord of God's people. He's the lord of lords. And that is the underlying theme of all that takes place in the gospel. In fact, if you want a brief outline, a really brief outline, of Matthew, the first 10 chapters are about the presentation of the king, and 11 through 28, the rejection of the king by the Jews. Okay? So that's a good way to really sum it up. Beginning in chapter 12, we really begin to see the animosity of the leadership in Israel begin to develop as they accuse Jesus of throwing out, or throw, you know, casting out the demons by the power of Beelzebub. Now, at this point, they're just kind of thinking it in their minds, but then later on, they will actually verbally accuse them, uh, accuse Jesus of that. In Matthew 12, 38, we have the scribes and the Pharisees then asking Jesus for a sign from heaven, okay? And that's something that they always do. They always want a sign, right? We used to see Paul talking about the Jews want a sign, right? Okay? And so that's something that's always going on. And then we see them ask for a sign again in Matthew 16, 1, and, and following that particular context, where the Pharisees and Sadducees now seek again for a sign. And in both cases, Jesus tells them that they are part of a wicked and perverse generation who seeks after marvelous signs. A wicked and perverse generation. That's you guys. That's what Jesus is saying. Unlike Nineveh, through the preaching of Jonah... Um, they don't hear the truth. And so Jesus says that they're, they're only going to see one sign, and that is the sign of Jonah. Okay, And that sign of Jonah is being like Jonah, where he was cast into the earth for three days, and he's going to rise again. That's going to be your When you see that sign, there's your sign. I'm going to die. I'm going to be resurrected again three days later. Now, in between these two challenges in Matthew 12 and Matthew 16, to Jesus, there's much going on. Uh, we find Jesus confirmed as a teacher. Uh, he, uh, as a rabbi, he establishes 
that with wisdom and knowledge and authority when he teaches the kingdom parables about what the kingdom is like, what the kingdom of heaven is like. And so he has wisdom and knowledge and authority, and he speaks that way, and he shows people what the kingdom of heaven is like. He demonstrates great power that only the king of the universe could accomplish by feeding 5,000 men, and that's just the men, there's also women and children there, feeding 5,000 men with only five loaves and two fishes. And then he does something pretty miraculous, you know, that not too many of us have done before, like walking on water across the Sea of Galilee. And so he does that. And he's got so much power, like he calls Peter out, you know, and Peter asks, hey, Lord, let me walk to you if it's you. And Peter does until he kind of loses faith, right? And he kind of waffles in his faith there and starts to sink, right? But here he is. He does that as well. So he commands the sea. He establishes himself as a healer by healing all sorts of people, right? On the other hand, the scribes and the Pharisees, and then the Sadducees are added in there in chapter 16, are offended by the authority and revelatory nature of Jesus' preaching and his teaching. But while they reject him, he is received with gladness, oddly enough, by the Gentiles, as we see in chapter 15. So Jesus then goes to the Gentiles, and they receive him. You know? And... Jews are rejecting him, especially leadership are rejecting him, but the, 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 the Gentiles, just like we see in the text that we read today, are receiving him. And again, as part of that, that uh, Gentile context, he feeds 4,000 people now in the area of the Decapolis, which is a primarily Gentile region. So he, he does what he did in Judea, now he does with the Gentiles, and he feeds 4,000 of them with seven loaves and a few fishes. And after all that, the Pharisees and Sadducees show up and they demand a sign. And obviously, as you're looking at all of that, they establish themselves as quite foolish. Right? As though he hadn't done anything that demonstrated his Messiahship yet. Right? (laughs) I mean, all that. And they want him to perform a sign for them. You know, really what they want is for Jesus to submit to their authority and perform for them. Do something really great. You know, cause the sun to go backwards, you know, 10 degrees or something like that. You know, something like one of the great prophets of old did, right? Send down manna from heaven like Moses did, right? Not like feeding 4,000 or 4,000 or 5,000 people with a few loaves and bread. Isn't like that, right? Then chapter 16 after he has this scuffle with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, right? Jesus then turns to his disciples and he says, but who do you say that I am? You know, I, know what, I know what the Sadducees and Pharisees think of me. We just saw that. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, and he gives his great confession, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter says, you are the Messiah. That's literally like the Christ. You're the anointed one. It means you're the Messiah. You are the Messiah that we have been waiting for. You are the living Lord God. And Jesus calls him blessed because the Father has revealed this to him. All of this has taken place over the course of several weeks as Jesus has gone about the countryside teaching and healing and feeding. But just prior to Jesus taking 
uh, Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus tells them something, and then we get into our text here, and so I'm going to read through the text. And we're going to begin, actually, in, in Matthew, at the end of Matthew uh, 16, verse 28, and then go on into the text. So the first thing that he says to them is, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Again, this is right in the context of Jesus or Peter's confession and then Jesus, Jesus having to rebuke him, right? Because Peter doesn't want him to go to the cross. He doesn't want him to die. He doesn't want him to suffer. He wants Jesus just to have glory without suffering. He wants Jesus to be the Messiah that they expect, not who he actually is. They want him to come as the king without suffering, right? Without dying. And, and so Jesus has to rebuke him, calls him Satan, and things like that, right? So he says, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some who are standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then six days later, after that, after that, the whole incident there, Jesus took Peter and James and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transformed before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. When he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. The disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has already come. And they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for this, your text. We thank you for uh, the teaching that it gives to us. Lord, we pray that it would not just be some facts to, to learn and put into our heads, but that you would change us and mold us and shape us to be more like Christ through this. And we pray that you would help us to grow in our knowledge of who you are and that we would observe who you are in your character. And Lord, that we would grow in our love for you. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's the context that we find ourselves in the text for today, where we see the glory. Okay, We see the glory of Jesus shine through for a bit, where we see him transfigured. So six days after Peter confessed Jesus is the Christ and, and Jesus rebuked him and all of those things, Jesus takes Peter and James and John up on a high mountain by themselves, apart from the other disciples. They've been in the region of Caesarea Philippi. That's where Peter made his great confession. And Caesarea Philippi 
is interesting in and of itself. Um, if you look, look at that text and you look at some of the geography and all of that, it's on the southwest corner of the Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon's like the highest peak around in that whole region there, and it's very beautiful. Okay, and you can see Mount Hermon's brought up in different passages in the song, in, uh, song of Songs, and it's in different passages throughout Scripture. It's a very beautiful area. It's a high mountain. It's the highest mountain, nine thousand some feet. Okay, and so that's probably where they are taken up on this high mountain, right in the region of Caesarea Philippi, where all of this stuff is taking place right now. So. Why does he take these three disciples up there? Well, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 17 and Deuteronomy 19, there is the principle that is established of testimony. Testimony being established by two or three witnesses. Right? So what does Jesus take? He takes three witnesses with him. Christ knew false accusations would be made regarding him, and these three were to be witnesses of Christ's glory, witnesses of who he is. But he also takes them there to confirm what Peter had six days before testified, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he is indeed the Messiah, the Anointed One, and God's going, the God the Father is going to uh, indeed impress that upon them so that they know, so that that they understand this truly is the Messiah. This, Jesus truly is the Son of God to build up their faith, right? Now, because they're going to be instrumental, these three are going to be instrumental in the early church as the church, you know, after Pentecost begins to go and expand. These three are very important in the building of the church, aren't they? Now, as they go up to the mount, Luke's parallel account in chapter 9 of Luke tells us that they were praying. They went up there to pray. They were praying. And while they were praying, we're told Jesus was transfigured before them. Now, what does that mean, transfigured? Right? Okay, so he was changed in some fashion. The literal, literal Greek word is metamorphoal. It's where we get the word metamorphosis from. Okay, what is that? Well, you know, a caterpillar, right? You ever seen a caterpillar? They go into a cocoon and they change into a butterfly. That's a metamorphosis, okay? And it's sort of like that. Jesus doesn't become a butterfly, <laughs> okay? His glory shines through. He's changed, okay? And in the text, we're, he's changed, and we see what that looks like to the disciples and it's like they don't have words that they can describe it with. They say things like, his face shone like the sun. Now, if you imagine that, his face shining like the sun, you know, you look up and the sun's out there. It's a long way away, but it's still really bright. Imagine if he's only a few feet away from you and the sun is shining in your face like that. Right? This is Jesus being transfigured like that. That's a change, isn't it? That's a metamorphosis of Jesus, the man. Right? And so it's sort of like what happens with Moses. Moses meets with God in Exodus 34. 
And as he meets with God, and he's with him for so long, he comes down off the mountain, and people run away from him in fear, right? They're running away from him because his face is shining with the glory of God. Right? That's a reflection, and people are afraid. That's a reflection of the glory of God. He's like the moon. Jesus is like the sun. Right? The moon's just a reflection of the sun. You can look at the moon, right? You can look at the moon in the dark, and you're not going to burn your eyes out, right? You look at the sun, though, you got a problem. Right? This is Jesus. He's shining like that. His face is lit up just a few feet from them, and his clothes become as white as the light. Just imagine what that would have been like for them on the top of the mountain witnessing this light. This son, Jesus, looking like this. Here they've been praying with Jesus. But here, here's what Luke says. And this is pretty common with the, the disciples. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered. And his robe became white and glistening. Then we see the disciples. But Peter and those with him, James and John, were heavy with sleep. And when they were fully awake, they saw his glory. So Jesus has been shining for a while, and then they kind of come out, of, and they're sleeping, right? Just like at Gethsemane, they fall asleep when they're praying again, right? And here we are. It's like a habit, right? And they wake up. They sort of wake up, and they see Jesus shining like this. They see that. They're startled out of their sleep, and there he is looking like this. And they awaken to have their world unsettled, right? By the sight of their friend, their Lord, shining like the sun and his clothes as white as light. Jesus, you see, is changed in glory. His, glo- his glory is shining through. We, they see, actually, Jesus in who he really is. It's like Charles Wesley's songs where he says, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. The veil has been taken off. And the veil's taken off, and they see the glory of the Son of God. This is who He is. Jesus is really like this. It's like the sun shining upon them from His face, and everything that He is is shining. As Mark 9 relates, his clothes became shining, exceedingly white, like snow. And he's looking for words. How do I describe this? It's, it's such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. That's how white they are. They're whiter than white. Can't really do that, right? Well, it does. Jesus, Jesus does that. Whiter than white. You know, the detergents try to make that claim, right? Whiter than white. Jesus actually does it, right? They're looking for the whitest thing that they can think of, and they can't, the, the words fail them. And this is who he is for a moment. His glory shines through. Unlike Moses, who merely reflected the glory of God, Jesus is glory. You get that? And this is who he is. Here's what Richard Lenski says about this. For a brief time, the whole body of Jesus was permitted to shine with the light and the refulgence of its heavenly divinity. Here in the moment, 
on this mount, his divine glory was permitted to shine out through his body for a bit, for a little while. Now, what else do they see? As they're looking at Jesus and they're struck, awestruck with his glory, what else do they see? We read in the text, Behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Now, why Moses and Elijah? Well, there's several reasons. First, that they represented the entirety of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. In fact, in Jewish culture, that was a common saying for the Old Testament. You pick up on that throughout the Gospels. They'll they'll talk about the law and the prophets, and you see that being brought up in the New Testament. You see the law and the prophets. When they're talking about that, they're talking about the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. It's the law and the prophets. Moses received the law from God. Elijah represented the great Old Testament prophets. He was so great that he was translated to heaven without dying. Right? A chariot of fire took him up. So they represent the entirety of the Old Testament. Second, it's likely that they came because Moses represented the head of Israel's history. They're beginning as a nation. Right? And Elijah, the low point of Israel's Old Testament history, when there were only 7,000 left who hadn't bowed their knee to Baal. Remember, he is crying out in distress. In a sense, it's a time of hypocrisy in Israel, like that of Jesus' day. And Jesus came to fulfill the Old Testament law and the prophets. Luke adds that they were talking with Jesus about something in particular. They were talking to Jesus about his death, his decease, as as it says in the text. They were talking to Jesus about his death, which would come shortly in Jerusalem. And so they were encouraging Christ Jesus in his humanity. They're encouraging him. And they're testifying of the glory of Christ. And then Peter, in his fear and wonder, you know, you got to love Peter. He's always kind of running off at the mouth, right? Doing stuff like that, right? Lord, may it never be. Don't go to the cross, right? I want to seal my doom and go to hell. I mean, that's what he's saying, right? He's always running off the mouth. He doesn't think before he should, before he says, says stuff. And here's Peter, and he's sitting there in fear and wonder, and he begins to babble, and he says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Let's stay here a while. Let's hang out here. Let's, let's, let's revel in your glory. And you think, where does this come from? What, what's going on here? And it seems that Peter feels the glory all around him, right? He sees the glory all around him. In fact, he probably feels very near to heaven, right? And quite possibly wants to sustain this experience. Maybe stay there forever. Can we just stay here? Well, no. No. There's also a sense that Mark alludes to of Peter just babbling out of fear. In fact, often Peter speaks out when he shouldn't. And this is one of those cases where he doesn't quite get it all. But he sees the glory of Christ. And he wants to stay there, right? He wants to stay there. He wants to participate in the glory of Christ. But it's while Peter is still speaking that a bright cloud comes over and overshadows them. 
Now, we've seen this cloud before. If you've read your Old Testament, you've seen this cloud before. It's the glory cloud of God. It's the glory. Where do we see the glory cloud of God? Yeah? Where? That's right, in the wilderness. Exactly. Exactly. So we've seen that glory cloud before, right? We've seen it with Moses, and he's leading the people through Israel. Exactly. And out of this cloud, right, here's, here's the glory cloud coming down, right? And here's the glory cloud covering them again. And out of this cloud comes a voice. Did we hear the... To hear the voice of God in the glory cloud in the Old Testament? Yeah, okay. And out of this cloud comes a voice. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him, right? The father's voice booms forth. Here are the three praying and then sleeping, right? And they're praying with Christ and slumbering. And they're awakened to find Jesus shining like the sun, talking with two saints of old. They start to babble, right? Peter starts to babble, and all of a sudden a voice comes out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Now it's no wonder then we read next that they fell on their faces in worship. They fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. They fall on their faces in worship. It might be a fearful worship, but they're on their faces worshiping God. Now, why does the Father come with his voice saying, this is my son? One of the great things he is doing is confirming the testimony of Peter from back in 1616. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And here the Father says, yes, that's true. but he's also helping to prepare the disciples for what is to come, and he's preparing Jesus for what is to come. He's saying, Jesus, I affirm you, my son. And so that the disciples will also hear the affirmation of the Father. And so they understand, yes, he is the son of God. It is true what I said. And they need that help because the son is going to suffer. He's going to suffer shame, right? They will witness all this horrible stuff going on to Jesus, happening to Jesus. And here's the father giving glory to the son and saying, I am well pleased with my son. Hear him. And he's affirming his beloved son. And just as at the beginning of Christ's ministry, the Father affirms and encourages the Son at his baptism, right? You hear a similar thing, right? This is my beloved Son, whom I am well pleased. Just as at the beginning of his ministry, so too now nearing the end of his actual ministry on earth, the Father encourages and affirms Jesus for what he is about to experience. And he does this for Christ's sake, right? does this for Christ's sake because Jesus knows what he's going to have to suffer he knows right and he is fully man as well as fully God right 
Finally, this whole transfiguration moment also establishes Jesus as the true and final prophet. Here we have Moses, a prophet, right? We have Elijah, a, a great prophet. Here's the prophet. This is the prophet that Moses in Deuteronomy 18 pointed to. This is him. Right? Here's the true prophet that has come. Meanwhile, the disciples are quaking. They're shaking. They're down on their faces in fear, just as Isaiah cried out, Woe is me, I am undone! When he comes into the presence of the Lord God, right? Just as John will later do on the island of Patmos, where he falls on his face before Jesus. They are confronted with the absolute holiness and power of the living God all around them. And they feel the consuming power of the Godhead. They feel it. They feel the consuming power of the Godhead. And they are sore afraid. They are so afraid that they lie there after the voice is gone, after hearing the testimony of the Father. They're trembling. And what does Jesus do? Yeah, you better lay there in fear. It's not what he does, is it? You bunch of sinners. He comes over and he touches them. He tenderly comes over, lays his hand upon them. He sees their fear. He knows their weaknesses. He knows that they are but dust. And he loves them and he comes to them with compassion, lays his hand on them and tells them, Arise. Do not be afraid. Arise. Do not be afraid. He comforts them in their fear. He tells them in his love for them, rest in me. He supplies their need at probably their greatest moment of fear. Because they see they are not holy. They are undone. You see in the text, when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The transfiguration had happened, and they had been undone. But Jesus sustains them. In a sense, they had died in their fear, but life was given to them through the Son. While they were downcast in fear, Christ was the lifter of their heads. And Christ lifted them up and beheld, and they beheld the glory and love of Jesus as they looked upon him again. And they only saw him. And here's our brother. Here's the one who loves us. Let us know that Jesus is still the one who tenderly loves us. He's still the one. This is his character. This is who he is. That he loves us and he touches us. And he says to us, do not fear. Perfect love drives out fear. Do not be afraid. That's for us today as well. Fear. Fear over our lack of holiness. Fear before the living God. Yes. But then Jesus lifts us up and he says, rest in me. Here I am. I'm the lifter of your heads. Now, as they descended off the mountain, Jesus told them to tell no one of this until he had risen from the dead. So this is now the second time that he's told them that he's going to die and rise again. The significance and the glory of the transfiguration would be seen when he was resurrected. 
Then you tell people about this. Peter writes in, in his epistles, he writes of this again. Okay? Look up, look in the epistles of Peter, and you can see him mentioning these things again. Others, Jesus is getting at that others would understand Christ's glory better through the resurrected Lord. Then you can bring in the trans, transfiguration. Then you can talk about these things. You can show them the glory. The message that he is the son of the living God, that the father is well pleased with him, that his glory and power was not lessened by his being in the flesh, but was veiled for humanity's sake because we couldn't take it. Just like these guys couldn't take it, Christ is, his, his glory is covered. It's veiled in flesh. It's out of his grace. Because we would be undone by witnessing such a glory. Right? And again, Moses, you think of Moses, who had to veil his face after he came down. But we find out why he veiled his face. Do you remember why? When we read in the New Testament, we read that he had to veil his face because his glory, the glory that was shining on him was fading. It was fading. Right? The glory of the Son of God does not fade. Instead, we understand that so glorious is the Son and so bright does He shine that when the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom of heaven is manifest upon earth, there will be no longer any need for our star, the sun, or the moon, right? For the glory of the triune God, the glory of the sun will illuminate it all in Revelation 21. And that's the glory that's witnessed in the transfiguration, the glory as of the only begotten Son, full of grace and truth. As they come down from the mountain, they are connecting dots. Okay, they're connecting things, they're, they're thinking through this. You can see them processing these things. And as they're coming down off the mountain, they're connecting that Jesus is the Messiah. We get that. Peter testified to that. Now the Father affirmed that to us. We get that he is the Messiah. We don't understand the fullness of all that yet, but we understand that he is the Messiah. But they're confused because they've been taught by the scribes and the Old Testament that Elijah would come first to prepare the way for Messiah. And so, where was he? Right? They'd just seen Elijah. Right? They saw Moses and Elijah. They just saw Elijah and they said, we don't recognize that guy. We haven't seen him come. What's going on, Jesus? Right? They hadn't seen this Elijah coming and preparing the way for Jesus. They're convinced even more so that Jesus is the Messiah, but what about Elijah? What about Malachi's prophecy? And so Jesus graciously answers them. And he said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. And then he says, But I say to you that Elijah has come already and they did not know him you know the people did not know him but did to him whatever they wished and likewise the son of man is also about to suffer at their hands jesus affirms the scriptures so the scriptures are fulfilled 
And he affirms that John the Baptist was indeed in the spirit of Elijah. They, Elijah and John the Baptist were similar men. You know, when you read the two accounts, you can see there's, there's a connection there, right? John came in the spirit of Elijah. And John set in motion the restoration of all things. He did that, right? Beginning first with Christ, right? It starts with Christ. Christ is the restorer of all things. John's the announcer of it all. And he did that, right? He prepared the way for the Lord and the bringing forth of the gospel. When he was with his, with his disciples, he pointed at Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Here he is. There's the gospel. There's the good news. This is the restorer of all things. And things like Malachi 4, 5, and 6, the prophecy that they're probably referring to, says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. I'm going to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. That began to happen. That began to happen with John. In a unique way, families began to improve through the gospel. We don't get that because we've had you know, fairly good families because the gospel has penetrated our culture for 2,000 years. Right? And so we just assume, yeah, this is the way families operate. But that's not. It's not the case. I saw that personally when I went to India. Families are messed up. This began to happen. Families restore, restored began to happen when Jesus came. Jesus elevated the role of women. He ele- elevated the role of wives. Right? Even as we see from Paul's writings, right? You see a difference going on with women than what you see in cultures worldwide, in history, and even now, in cultures that don't have the gospel. The gospel, you see, the gospel promise is given for families. And the gospel promise is given to children as we see at the beginning of Peter's, you know, see at the beginning of the church in Peter's Pentecost sermon in Acts 2.39 where he says this promise is to you and to your children and all who are far off. And in Luke 1.16 and 17, Gabriel told Zacharias that John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Your son, Zacharias, John, is going to fulfill Malachi's prophecy and will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The gospel has changed families in over 2,000 years. And that's just the start of the restoration of all things. As Jesus said these things about Elijah and about his coming already, the lights began to go off in the disciples' minds. And they understood, as the text says, understood that he spoke to them concerning John 
the Baptist. And so we must understand that the glory of the transfiguration and the glory of the resurrection are all tied together. Christ's glory is seen in both. Both attest to his power and kingship over all things. And we also have seen the king of kings, and he comes tenderly to those who are his own. And he loves them, and he touches them. And he gives them himself, right? He came to serve and not to be served. And he gives himself for our salvation, right? And he feeds us. And that's why we come to the table to remember the glory of Christ, to remember his covenant with us, that he has made covenant with us, the new covenant in his blood we talk about, right? The character of Jesus that we see at the transfiguration is the character of who he is now because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? This is who he is. And when we come to this table, we see that it's a seal for our salvation, but it's more than just remembering. It's here at the table that Christ feeds us. And he feeds us with himself through his spirit by lifting us up to the heavenly with him. And he brings us to himself. And it's where we receive assurance that he is who he is. We are who we are. But that he has given us life and health and our being that is found in him. So when we come to this table... Let us rejoice, for Christ has revealed his glory to us. He has revealed his glory to us through his word, through the testimony of the the apostles, the prophets, through his spirit in us and who dwells in our midst, and through the table. He has revealed his glory to us, the glory of the risen and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. So come to this table. And be filled with joy in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for revealing the glory of your Son to Peter and James and John so many years ago up on that mountain. Oh Lord, thank you for loving us and sending your Son to die for us in our stead, removing our sins far from us, Thank you for your compassion and mercy upon us, for lifting us up, for lifting our heads so that we may behold your glory, for sustaining us in times of trial and fear. Dear Father, help us that we might continue to see the glory of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that we might rest in him in all things. He is our Son. such a delight to think about coming to the table because this is our king um, saying come sup with me you know how what a great privilege it is to be called into you know the the white house to have a a dinner with the president or if you were if we were in great britain to have dinner with the king right they're nothing compared to christ they're nothing compared to christ Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he calls us to his table, and because of what he has accomplished for us on our behalf, breaking his body, shedding his blood, we are able to have 
dinner with him. We are able to sup with him. And he shows us that we are right with him. That is the glory that we see in Christ, that he has accomplished these things for our sake. And he says, come, come. So we invite to the Lord's table all those who are baptized and under the authority of Christ in his body, the church, by eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you are acknowledging that you are a sinner without hope except in the sovereign mercy of God and that you are trusting in Christ Jesus alone for salvation. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.